Good evening, everyone. Hello, everyone. Attenzione. I want to welcome everybody to our 24th Bad Talk. This is the end of our sixth season. Um, I'm delighted to see how many people came tonight. I think there's a lot of interest in other things tonight as well. Um, but here we all are, so um, hopefully we know what's important. <laughs> um, I thought that John and I would both welcome you tonight since this does seem to be a cardinal number, um, our 24th. So um, thank you for keeping with it and hopefully these ideas will continue to pull your attention into future bad talks. With that, I'm gonna let John say a few things as well. I'm glad everybody here has their priorities straight, so <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this is, like, like, uh, like, like, like Paul was saying, this is our 24th talk, so we've now been doing bad talks for six full years. So thank you all for helping us. Um, yeah. Thanks uh, for helping to build this, this kind of community that we've developed. It's, it's really great to see what this has become. And uh, what Bad Talks you know, sort of started as and, and what it has turned into is exactly what we hoped it would, which is, which is a community that just continues to self-support. And so what we rely on um, for these events is, is topics. What's going on in your world that you want to talk about? What's an issue for you? Because chances are it's an issue for a whole lot of people in this industry. And so let's put it on the table. Let's get a group of experts together and let's talk about it. So um, as I always do, I'm going to encourage everybody to visit badtalks.com and make a suggestion for any topic that is on your mind that you want to hear us talk about in the future. So thank you so much again for supporting us and, and for coming out tonight. We've got a great panel put together and we're very excited. Thanks so much. And good evening. Um, as I think you all know, after 24 of these now, my name is Kyle Hepner, uh, the editor of New England Home. Uh, we have, too have been delighted to be associated with the Bad Talks for the past six years. Uh, because it, this group and this mission sits right in the middle of what we do as a brand, uh, which is not only putting out all of the beautiful work that you guys do in front of an eligible public of potential clients and other admirers in the world, but we also see ourselves very much as a partner in the design community uh, and want to be able to kind of be part of making everybody here, including us, more successful. Uh, and as we've discovered in New England, that, and here's somewhere I think we actually lead the country in this way, that the high-end residential market for the people who are working in this industry is really does better as a collaborative endeavor. Uh, because there is a lot of work out there, and even though a lot of people in this room may technically be in competition with some of the other people in this room, there are aspects of the industry where we can all do better what we do and service the clients better and therefore make the sort of potential industry itself grow completely. Um, and so we are delighted to be part of that uh, group endeavor. Um, tonight, we also are dealing with a very specific topic, which is one of the things we do with the bad talks, is we try to be highfalutin sometimes and get way down in the weeds and talk about very much nuts and bolts. Uh, this one will be a little bit in the middle of there, but probably more of the nuts and bolts in some ways. Um, New England is growing quickly in certain ways, particularly in its cities, and particularly in places like Boston and Portland. Um, some other cities also, and I suspect some other cities like Worcester may be beginning an ascent, and there may be a lot of opportunity there because there's a lot of very cheap real estate in a really kind of cool city center that a lot of developers haven't quite snapped up yet. Um, so that's my hint for the evening. Um, so what we're here to talk about tonight is kind of what are some of the secrets that you might need to know if you are looking to do more work 
in urban spaces, and that can be townhouses, it can be a lot of renovations, it can be in low-rise buildings, it can be in loft conversions, or it can be in a lot of the new high-rise developments that have been popping up all over the place. And here tonight, we have four experts in that who between them, I suspect, have probably worked on several hundred uh, urban developments of various sorts, if we had to kind of go through the row and, and see how many you've done. Um, to my immediate left, we have Ellen Perko, who is Associate Principal with CBT Architects. Uh, those are three initials that you will see appended to virtually every development that's currently going on in Boston, I think, in some fashion or another. Um, and Ellen is also, although this is a little bit less for tonight, is also kind of the go-to person for single-family residential uh, when CBT does that. But right now, Ellen is working on lots and lots and lots of bigger things. Uh, we have Michael Frizzoco, who's the principal of 11 Interiors, based here in Boston. In fact, not very far away in this neighborhood. Um, Michael also, uh, as an interior designer, has worked in the city quite a lot, as well as outside, but specifically in the city. Uh, we have David Carlson, who is the Deputy Director for Urban Design for the Boston Planning and Development Agency. Um, and so he is our um, representative of the kind of permitting and public oversight angle on these things. Uh, but David obviously has coordinated over the years with many, 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 many developers and architects and builders on almost every aspect of what gets built in the various parts of Boston. And so we're delighted to have David here and have his expertise at our disposal. And finally, on the far end, we have John Wardwell, who is the president of JW Construction, and whom many of you in this room have probably worked with over the years. Um, JW does a lot of work both in and out of the city, and huge amounts of very high-end residential among the mix. Um, and so we, we are delighted to have all four of these folks here to uh, help us plumb the depths of what you need to know um, in urban work um, and perhaps to some extent what you might be able to learn from urban work that can also be applicable outside. Um, so just to kind of jump into things, I want to do a little quick poll of the audience, if I can, just to kind of help us focus where we're going. Um, how many of you here have already done a lot of downtown projects of various sorts? So quite a few of you. How many people are here because you are looking to do more of that kind of work or are looking for tips for that? A lot of, so about half and half there. Um, how many of you have done a lot of downtown work and are thinking, there's got to be an easier way? No. Um, <laughs> we'll see if we can help with that also. Um, and then quick, just architects in the room, interior designers, builders or subcontractors of various sorts, and then other people, showroom owners, people who make beautiful stuff, Vendors of various sorts, kind of the, the support staff who make everybody else's job possible. Great. Well, that gives us an idea of kind of where we're looking. Um, so just to get things started, for any of our panelists, kind of what opportunities for you have downtown projects offered that you might not have been able to get in projects in other places? or what do you see as kind of the growth areas for urban projects in New England going forward, residentially speaking? Only residentially? Um, yeah, this is, I mean, we want to stick mostly to residential, I think, because okay. that's kind of who our audience are here. It can be multifamily, but also a lot of single family or kind of in that area. comes and goes, but the trend is strong now to move back into the cities um, from many different points of view, uh, simply because cities are where uh, people are concentrated um, and where there's more synergy. So if you are um, 
whether you are moving because you have a large empty house in the country and you want to move into the city, that's where the cultural events are, where the art is, where you can go out um, and in a short walk um, have a variety of engagements and experiences, at least the potential of that. Um, and if you are um, a younger worker, millennial, um, moving into the city, uh, the city, for the same reasons, is kind of where it's happening, and you just have to figure out how you can possibly get to a place where you can live within the city for all the same reasons, for all the same action, for all the same engagement. It's the, the concentration of people and the synergy. Uh, I passed on the way here, I passed an event that this building was hosting to try and mingle all the tenants in the building, uh, which is, is a way of engagement uh, with people you might not normally run across. Um, so the, the neighborhood bars are still serving the purpose they have for hundreds of years uh, very successfully. Cool. Well, Ellen, I mean, you guys have your finger in almost everything that's going on these days. So what is your take on this on behalf of CBT? Well, what I was going to say is that there's a level of diversity in the city that you often don't get when you're living outside the cities, be it in a suburban area or more rural area. And I think that the infrastructure that exists, the um, opportunities that exist, all of the services that you have here, and then all of the people that you meet are such that it just opens up so many avenues that just as David was saying about the synergies, I don't think as architects we would be able to be as creative and do the kinds of things that we can do um, without the ability to have the variety of artisans and craftsmen and you know vendors and people that carry all the fabulous products and things like that and, and builders and everybody that just bring to the table their vast knowledge and the wide variety of things they do. Just makes everything richer for us. Um, I mean, are you guys, what is the mix that you're seeing between kind of new developments or buildings that are going up from scratch that offer not only sort of the initial development of the building itself and its interior spaces, but also then all of the individual units that sell or get rented that need to be redone versus restoration and uh, kind of renovation work in existing housing stock, various sorts? For us, it uh, depends on what part of the city it is. Because Boston has a lot of little pockets. So like in the North End, Back Bay, Beacon Hill, it's primarily restoration work. Um, the Seaport, a lot of new construction, which hasn't been part of the business model so well. But, uh, so we found that a long time ago, I saw this guy, FBN Construction work, and I said, well, what a great idea to work in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> so, we followed Bob into the city and found out that our client base has gone through the process before and they want to move into the city and find their final place to dwell a lot of times or an additional place to dwell. So they understand the process, they want to do things properly which fits our business model well and there's a lot of restoration so it keeps some of the new construction people out and you have to really understand the logistics of working in the city. So it's nice to work with people who have been through the process before. Typically they're not first time home buyers, um, but it's a little bit crazy in here. So yeah. I think wait, wait, so I'm not nuts. <laughs> You're nuts. You're nuts. You're absolutely nuts. But I think I'm nuttier for following you guys in here. But. No, it's a great, the city of Boston's a great place to work because it's such beautiful buildings. A lot of, we do a lot of work on turn of the century property, so it pushes us into, you know, the south end, the west end, Beacon Hill, Back Bay, but it keeps us, in north end, but it keeps us out of some pockets like the seaport because there's not a lot of restoration work there. Right. We will go in and do some of the high-rise projects, but those are a whole different 
right. approach but, as well. So. But if somebody has decided to put in French provincial paneling in one Dalton, you'd be happy to go in and do that. We would. People do that. You, know. yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't believe what's in the Millennium Tower. Well, Michael. Mm -hmm. in and around the city, um, Cambridge included, and um, there's, an, there's an awful lot of um, money coming into the city, even internationally. So there's a lot of foreign buyers who are coming in and buying in those uh, quaint neighborhoods, those historic neighborhoods. And it can be challenging uh, combining units and, and, um, and figuring out structural issues, and you know, thank God that there are great architects in the city that we can work with to figure out those issues for us. But um, uh, marrying the historic with the more contemporary and or modern sensibilities that are coming into the city um, is really a, is a great challenge. It's, a, it's, it's really been wonderful for us because the, the, the old Boston um, uh, traditional environments I see less and less in the design work that we're doing. And that's not just about um, these new contemporary buildings that are going on in the seaport. Uh, that is happening in Beacon Hill, and the Back Bay, and the South End, in Cambridge, et cetera. So that's, that's a great challenge, marrying the old and the new in that design process, and trying to honor that architectural vernacular, bringing it into the interior and, and, and enhancing it. Um, uh, so yeah, I'd have to agree. You know, The city has changed quite a bit, and I think it's because of this international influx of buyers that we have. Right. But I think there's another aspect to it, and that is when you're using an existing building, there's all the embodied energy that came into it. So sustainability-wise, using a building over is, frankly, a better use sometimes than knocking it down and starting from scratch. What I find really fascinating and interesting is how sometimes we're able to take buildings, be they buildings that were university buildings, buildings that I'm just thinking of the one right next to the State House 25 Beacon, where it used to always be part of the Unitarian Universalist Church. We were able to change it into condominiums. So you can find new lives with buildings, and you end up with something that wasn't necessarily the way it always was, but has turned into something that is usable for the next, hopefully, 100, 200 years. Right. right. Well, and that process can involve challenges in itself, because I think when we talked last week, you were mentioning uh, some buildings that had originally belonged to Suffolk University, I think, along Beacon Street, mm -hmm. that you guys were kind of knocking through and combining oh, several townhouses. Emerson, Emerson, Emerson <laughs> College, yes. What used to be Emerson College. Yeah. Um, Kind of from an architect's perspective, what are some of the challenges or learning curves that you have to go through for working on projects like that? Sure, so from what Michael was saying, you do sometimes when you're trying to make bigger buildings out of small townhouses have challenges with how you marry buildings together. Oftentimes, one building and the next building, although they look like they all work together beautifully, when you look very carefully at the details, ever so slight changes happen, and so one floor and another floor might not be perfectly aligned. So a lot of times we'll work with builders that will come in and frankly take out all of the floor framing and redo new floor framing to allow for the floors to come through. And then architecturally and in interior design, you play little games to try to find ways that the windows don't feel too high or too low and all work together in a seamless way. Um, that's, that's quite a part of the story when, when you are converting buildings and, and from commercial like the Dexter Dixon, Dexter Dixon lofts on Washington Street in downtown Crossing where you have two buildings with slightly different floor levels so you have to arrange elevators so that they stop multiple times, they serve both sides, you have very odd corridors, some with steps, um, so not every unit is for every person. Um, but you, that's something that you come across and it becomes a complex problem to be solved. Uh, and that's a, a medium scale you know, uh, conversion project, or, or it was. 
There's simple buildings at the Navy Yard, which are old, um, uh, called the maritime industrial buildings that the Navy built for purposes. Those have been converted to uh, uh, condos in one case, in the case of Building 33. So there's a lot of that going on, a lot of new. I mean, we see it all at the, uh, at the agency. Uh, there's a huge volume. I mean, Boston is undergoing the, one of the largest booms in its entire history. Um, so there's a huge volume of everything. The rope. I never expected the rope walk to actually be developable as residential, and somebody figured out a way. That's in Boston and a lot of the neighborhoods that were mentioned, particularly for row houses, um, there's a historic district, um, and, and so that uh, commission associated with the district has purview. The, the Navy Yard is an interesting creature because uh, the rope walk is a landmark building. The Navy Yard is a national landmark, and it's in the historic monument area. So there, I won't go into any detail, uh, uh, except that there are layers of kind of regulatory review in, in history which govern what you can do to the outside. So the rope walk, which is a quarter mile long granite building, one story for about half its length, two stories for almost the rest of its length, three stories at the end. How do you convert that thing to residential? It's 55 feet wide with some variation. It's a single story. You have to, it's a little bit deep for residential. You can't cut in new windows. You can't cut in new doors. What you gonna do? <laughs> um, it, it, that's the kind of problem that you can come across and uh, we'll see how well it's solved, uh, but you, you'll have people that you enter in a door and you walk along a long corridor and the back of the corridor is part of the interpretation of the rope walk which is how it got by the National Park Service. Anyway, that's probably too deep a dive for. So if the city of Boston says it's difficult to jump through hoops and there's different departments, you know it's really like that. So there's <laughs> planning, historical zoning, just keep on going. So, but the city of Boston's done a great job and the permitting process is difficult, but you learn as you go, and yeah, they're and transforming, they're doing a really good job in keeping uh, the historic buildings in, in uh, the same form and keeping them pretty authentic and original, which is nice on the outside and some nice spaces inside. There are the, a lot of interesting conversations that we have along the way. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> we only hear this much at the county. Well, that's, that's actually a really good segue, I think, because you know one of the, well, kind of two of the notable things about projects in the city. One of them is the number of you know, neighborhood commissions or regulatory agencies or things that you need to work with. And so I'd love to talk about that a little bit. And the other is just simply that it is in the city and any work site that you have or anything that's going on is within 100 feet of dozens of other people who are gonna have a lot to say about it one way or another. Um, so anybody who wants to jump into some of both the politics and kind of best practices for keeping people happy about residential work, uh, feel free to, to chime in. I think it's, uh, personally, I think it's all about being proactive in communication from the very beginning, you know, letting neighbors know what is going to be happening whenever you have information. Um, there are so many agencies that you have to go through for various approvals. And I think that keeping in touch with everybody who may be in those surroundings need, is, is a very, very good idea. Um, when we work even in a, in a multi-unit building, uh, just the simplest thing, letting every neighbor know who's surrounding that condominium that there is going to be work going on, that there's going to be loud work going on on Wednesday morning or whatever it might be. Um, you can diffuse a lot of the, um, a lot of the uh, willingness to, uh, to willingness to, to uh, begin an angry conversation, let's put it that way. Uh, and it happens very, very quickly, you know, knocks on the door and you're not supposed to be doing this and, and keep it down, it's 9.30, it's whatever it is in these multi-unit buildings, it can be very difficult. But in residential buildings, for instance, um, we're, we're doing this project in Cambridge right now, it's about 
It's about 8,000 square feet. We're adding onto the building. Um, it's on Trowbridge Street near Harvard University. And we've already had meetings with neighbors to let them know what we're doing, what we can do by right based on the lot size. Uh, but there's, a lot, there's been a lot of resistance. Um, but we find, that, we find that the communication and the, the conversations are much easier when we are proactive about giving them information. Right. Well, David, I mean, from your perspective, kind of as an official for the, the, the city, um, do you have advice for people about kind of how best and most productively to engage with various, cities, various city agencies and employees? Um, I, I, good and bad examples of these things? I better not give bad examples. Yes. Name names. Uh, uh, I, first, I, I want to um, echo what uh, Michael was saying because that's really excellent advice, and and that works at every scale of project. Uh, we have a process called the Article 80 process for large project review, uh, but there are processes at, at every scale. Um, and a lot of that is going out into the public. We have a team of project managers at, whose job it is simply to shepherd a building through the process. Um, they operate on the larger scale. Uh, we have planners and my staff in urban design whose Part of whose job is to, if, if anyone calls or if somebody is confused, you should be talking to us because part of what we try and do is um, shed a little light on the processes that people are likely to go through and help guide them along the way. Um, it's incredibly complex for the larger projects, which is why we have a, spe a special team of project managers to handle that. Um, but it's also true on the much smaller scale, the individual projects where we have any purview. A lot of the um, residential projects, certainly the interiors and historic neighborhoods, we don't see at all. Um, and we will, we will see things sometimes only if there's a change to the exterior um, outside of those districts, but in main streets districts, in areas and so zoning calls protection areas or neighborhood design overlay districts. There's lots of different triggers. There's a simple tool, by the way, on the um, BPDA website, which is bostonplans.org, uh, which is called the Zoning Viewer. And the Zoning Viewer becomes a super useful tool because you can click on a property and it tells you, warning, warning, regulations might apply. Um, but it, but it uh, that's not necessarily super helpful because you kind of guess that to begin with. Um, but it does tell you what regulations might apply. And as soon as you talk to staff, you can find out, well, if, if you're uncertain, it should tell you if you're in a historic district, for example, which tells you one thing. And that's the, those are the people that you need to talk to. But it tells you if you're going to be in violation of zoning, and that sets you on another path uh, and then you can call people, you can call the planner, uh, the agency has planners by neighborhood, and you can talk to them, and part of their job as well at that smaller scale is to talk people through what the process is likely to have to be. So we have, uh, we are all ready to help as staff as best we can to help everyone figure things out. Um, and that's the way we generally try and treat people who call in. We're all stressed for time, so don't expect to get a hold of us right away. But, um, but that's a, a part of how the agency um, conducts business. I think it's important as well to uh, assemble a team that has gone through the process, because there's always a lot of surprises. Um, I, most of our work is the Back Bay and Beacon Hill, and those houses are connected, typically row houses, with common walls between uh, the properties. So clients come in and they want to move into the city and they see this beautiful brownstone with a glass head house on the roof and they want that, you know, but it may not be allowed because just because it sits next door, it may not be allowed or if it is allowed, there's a lot of, there's a 
process to get through it to get the permitting. So I think if you speak with the city prior to um, embarking on your project, work with a contractor, architect, designer that has done a lot in the city, and actually if you get um, a zoning attorney, a lot of times they'll cut through the chase if there's questions to be answered because it's not the easiest way, you know, the, it's not always information that is sitting out there on the web that you can find. So, you know, each project's a little different than... Super difficult sometimes. It is possible so, to yeah. do it yourself, and you know some projects are very straightforward, and some, uh, we had a project in, uh, it was in uh, right off Charles Street, and the woman wanted to take a mechanical space, it was 60 square feet, and it was labeled mechanical on her plans when she bought it, she wanted to convert that 60 square feet into finished space, so we had to go through a whole legal variance process for 60 square feet. It becomes new FAR space. FAR, yeah. you know, and she wasn't aware that that was the process, but for her it was worth it because 60 square feet has a lot of value in prime areas of Boston. So um, educating the client or if someone going out to a client should really work with people who have been through the process and team approach and communication is definitely the way to go. Depending on the neighborhood you're working in, to make sure you do talk with staff early because what you'll find regulatory wise related to historic districts is that what's defined as the exterior isn't always what you think it is. Sometimes alleyways are also considered, sometimes they're not. And so you do definitely want to know what the parameters are before you start, because if your client gets their heart set on certain things, <laughs> it, yeah, it's really hard to explain to them why they cannot have it. Right. And neighborhood associations can be kind of picky about what they consider visible from the public right of way. Correct. Um, yeah. And, and, and you might not think it's very visible. That's a key word is public right of way. Correct. So the commissions all have control over changes made that are visible from a public right-of-way um, and some commissions like the South End modify that definition <laughs> slightly um, uh, but all the alleys um, whatever one thinks of the alleys and their character they're all public ways in the back bay for example and a number of them are also in the South End but a lot of them are actually private ways also in the South End so there's a mix um, so it it becomes complicated, but if the more you know about the property and what's immediately um, adjacent to it, the better off you are. And the more informed a conversation you can have with the people who want to help you. Yeah. Well, we've. It can oh. be a long process, and I, I think it's very helpful, as John was saying, to um, <clears throat> gather a team of people together who have experience with these agencies. Um, the process can be long and you don't want to further lengthen it by going to these meetings and not being as prepared as you should be and presenting them with the information that they want to see um, because they'll send you back and then you have to wait for the next meeting before you can go on to the next agency. Um, and that, that can obviously add time to your project and it can cost your client a lot of money. Right. Um, so it's, it's really important to align yourself with the right people, uh, especially those who may have relationships with those commissions and those um, uh, committees that they have to meet with. There's also a lot of regulations that may be triggered depending on how much work you do within the unit um, where you have to bring the space up to today's code requirements, which might be fire sprinklers or right. egresses that may not exist right. and staircases that aren't wide enough. So that's something to know prior to going into the project. And if you have a good architect, they usually grab that. But a lot of times it's driven by the homeowner's wants and it's hard to say no, right? They want it done and they want it done in half the time it should take. So, uh, and then you hit these, you hit these stumbling blocks and it doesn't go so well. Right. But yeah, I should also mention if anybody has a question or wants to interject something, just kind of how, kind of wave at me when I look out at you, and I'll try to get to you. Jackie, did you want to? How many of you have, in light of everything you just shared, 
A lot of the clients are really busy and don't have the time to be involved as you know as a full-time thing they have work family life and uh, the owner the owner's rep is the liaison pretty much between all the team members and they throw the difficult <clears throat> stuff back at the contractor anyways so it doesn't matter <laughs> you get the permits put recessed lights in the ceiling somehow don't lower the height but get the lights in there but uh, yeah, so owners reps, we like to, we, you know, the more people on the team, I think it's a better way, it's a better result with the project. That's been the only way we've ever worked with an owner's rep as well. As John is saying, a client that just doesn't have time to meet with us, they, right. may they, maybe they travel quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, the project has a finite period where it has to get done. There's always overruns, of course, but um, um, in order to keep the process moving, uh, it's important to have somebody there, despite Skype and conference calls and, and every other technological um, aspect that it's av that's available to us. I think that a lot of homeowners find it comfortable and, um, and comforting to have somebody there who understands what they want and that fully, can fully represent them, somebody that they trust. Um, and that person can communicate with the owners at any time. Um, I certainly don't want to be getting calls and having to get on Skype at 11 or 12 o'clock at night because, you know, a client is in China. So. But it's happened sometimes. It does, <laughs> yes. On a regular basis, it's uh, that 13 it's, hour it's brutal. time difference can be a problem. It's true. done sort of due diligence type of work with clients where they'll have a couple of properties that they're looking at and we'll look at the opportunities of well what would you like to do here and how big a space do you need and what sorts of needs do you have and wants do you have and then we'll talk about the positives and negatives of a couple of different properties. This one doesn't need an addition because it's big enough and you can do this. This one would need an addition and then you have these series of things you need to do. And so a lot of times it's a little bit of upfront work before they decide to buy a property that pays off in the end because they really realize that they're going to get a better benefit from one process versus another. That actually, I think, gets us to an interesting thing because, and this would apply both to kind of townhouses and other renovations, but also some of the bigger uh, new buildings that we'll be talking a little bit more about too, which is what are some of the constraints that you see there about like glass curtain walls or fenestration or where the HVAC has to be or the ceiling heights and how you deal with trying to put in lighting uh, or where the plumbing can go. Um, kind of are there some 
Yeah, exactly. Parking, where the electrical box is, things like that. I mean, are, are there things that you guys have learned over time that you are looking out for or that you've learned ways to work around that you want to share with the audience here? Oh, where do we begin? <laughs> the, list is, the list is long. Yes. <clears throat> we have specific from, requests from anybody? From, from our point of view, from an interior design perspective, um, when we have clients who are buying into these large multi-unit buildings uh, that have propped up recently in the city, and we have concrete slabs for floors and ceilings and what have you, um, you know, we try to manage expectations. Believe it or not, they do go in there and they want to rip out kitchens and rip out bathrooms immediately, and you know, the building was just finished. Uh, we're happy to do it, but we have to do it within certain certain constraints because we can't move water lines. Very unlikely that we can move water lines, drain lines, et cetera, if they're, they're in the concrete. Um, uh, sometimes it can be difficult to add recess lighting. Uh, we, had a, we had a project going on at, at, a, at a building in town that's, that's been there for 12 or 14 years now. And uh, we were doing a kitchen renovation and the ceiling for some reason was seven foot seven. The rest of the apartment, the ceilings were about nine feet. Um, and we thought that maybe we could raise at least a portion of the ceiling um, in that kitchen. And unfortunately, when we, when, we, when we demoed the kitchen, we found that there was a, a piece of steel hanging from an I-beam, and they never cut it off. And that's why the ceiling was <laughs> seven foot seven. There was a lot of space up there. Did you cut it off? They wouldn't let us. The building wouldn't let us. So you know, these buildings, they have um, their own building engineers, mm -hmm. right, who review the processes of, of, uh, of what you're proposing for renovations. And they come in in stages, you know, the, the demo stage, the rough electrical, the rough plumbing. And they're, they're checking on what you're doing in addition to the city checking on what you're doing and right. signing off on permits. Um, and they would not let us cut that piece of steel to raise the ceiling. That is an important point, Michael, because one thing you'll find when you're working within, say, larger building condominiums, aside from working with the city, a lot of times you are working with the condominium association. And the interesting thing about that is it can be very beneficial. They have a lot of existing drawings and things like that. The bugaboo, is when you decide, for instance, that you want to change out a fireplace and then you find out that the flue was never put in properly, the building engineer tells you, well, you have to install it properly now <laughs> because you found it. So it's, it's interesting peeling back the layers of the onion because you, you find interesting things. <laughs> John, you must have had some experiences with this kind of thing also. Uh, yeah, quite a few. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know where to start. No, I think one of the things that we say a lot—it's one of our company uh, slogans—is anticipate the curveball because it's coming. You just don't know when or where. And uh, I think if you educate the client about that it, on a renovation, not on the not as much on the new stuff, but you know that there's always going to be something, an unknown that comes across that you have to deal with. And if you're prepared for that and you, you know, you kind of anticipate that, the project will go smoothly. So yeah, we've, you know, Boston is a city that was filled, right? So a lot of people want to go down and go up, but there's a lot of complexities with the older buildings and yeah. Things like I mean, that. are there specific types of complexities that you've learned over time to look for up front because they're more likely to crop up? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of times, the, back to the realtor question, I think it's important to have a good realtor because they'll, they'll hit on a lot of the things that may be issues and then we're called in early on a lot for a feasibility study and a pricing exercise just to see if what they want to do is in their budget and a lot of times you'll see the same issues pop up and you'll, you can identify those. So um, I think that 
a lot of those are triggered, like I said, by how much work is done in the property, on the older properties. So you might have to bring in a new line for a fire suppression system, or if there's no water in the street, you have to put a bladder in the building to store water for the fire uh, sprinkler systems. A lot of little things like that. And then um, the, re the whole recharge system with water, you know, they don't want to dry, a lot of these properties were built on pilings and don't want them to dry out. So there's an engineering process to go through with that too. Yeah, yep. checks out all of that. Oh yeah, uh, and that's in, in many districts. A um, uh, it's an overlay district, right. and you're required to, to do that. Also, you, yeah, you don't want it to dry out because then your building will collapse. So it wouldn't be a good thing. Can you explain the overlay district, what that means? So an, an overlay district in general is a, a category of zoning district, uh, which is overlaid uh, on top of other existing zoning. Um, so uh, and, uh, it's probably best to end that sentence right there. Um, but you have zoning for the whole city, and, and the zoning describes in different situations, um, the, you know, the density that you can build to, that's floor area ratio or FAR. Um, it often will tell you the height, not always. Um, uh, it will tell you if there's setbacks from the property line or if the building has to set back above a certain height. Those are all the dimensional things which are typically contained in zoning. Uh, and then there are um, overlays, so there are um, Conservation districts, which are an overlay, and some of these are kind of their, carry their own zoning with them, but there's open space um, conservation districts, um, uh, and the, I, I will get the name of it right, I won't get the name of it right, but the, uh, so there is a, an overlay for water conservation um, district, and those are generally uh, in the areas of the city which are filled, and therefore where water table um, is of particular sensitivity. So this is um, South End, Back Bay, Bay Village, um, parts of Chinatown. I can't remember if it goes um, across into the Fort Point Channel uh, area. Um, and these are the areas where, as land was filled, the old techniques for, um, for supporting the buildings was to drive piles into the muck and put granite um, caps on top of the piles and put the building on top of that. And the wood piles are good as long as they are kept from drying out, because as soon as they dry out, they rot. So that's the reason for that particular overlay. Uh, and the Boston Water and Sewer Commission has engineers which pay particular attention to that. But um, also, there is a requirement for a recharge. So. Uh, triggered by a certain amount of development or improvement on the property, uh, and that means you have to recharge a certain amount of the water back into the water table. Uh, and that is a complicated and expensive and often difficult proposition to do. There are ways of doing that. Uh, I, I have the luxury of being on the uh, kind of the spectator side of things, trying to guide people. I don't actually have to figure out and solve the um, problems. So I don't come across the kinds of difficulty that, that John or, or Michael have. I probably shouldn't put it that way. Um, but, but, but actually looking at things uh, from that point of view allows us a um, very broad sort of generalized uh, assessment of the kinds of problems that you are likely to encounter. Uh, which is why whether it's through a um, uh, whether it's through an agent, whether you hire a, a firm, a legal firm for things, um, and and you know, use a owner's rep or or a legal firm as a um, translator, if you will, of, of things. Um, uh, we try and help out whoever, and we get a lot of a lot of people come into our agency. Um, that uh, are, are, want to know what they can build on a site. 
So, and that is a way of sort of, rather than just try to get answers on the phone, it's often difficult to describe things on the phone. If you have a small team and you, there's a property and you want to see what you can do before you purchase, then set up a meeting, come in and talk to us and we can do that and help guide you at least to some of the, not in any detail, because that's not our job, but, um, but can guide you towards some of the paths where, you know, here lies danger, here, here lies sea serpents, that kind of thing. Well, I think um, I now have a question, I think, that's aimed a little bit at uh, Michael and Ellen in particular, uh, which is obviously a lot of the development that's going on in Boston right now, particularly in the seaport area and nearby South Boston and parts of the South End, are these large kind of multi-unit buildings that are often being built from scratch and hundreds and hundreds of people are moving into them. Um, from a designer's point of view, kind of aesthetically and in terms of kind of usefulness for the people who are gonna live there, what are some of the things you think about or what have you learned uh, about kind of taking these basically glass and drywall boxes and turning them into interesting and livable space, and particularly sort of smaller units that also need to have a lot of storage somehow for people who may be moving in from other places outside. So you're talking specifically about the living units or the entire building? Uh, the living or units the specifically, because I think a lot of the people in this room would be working on individual units rather than whole developments. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, it seems like the trend has been that units are starting to get smaller as amenity spaces within a building, things like lounge areas or co-working office space or fitness areas, things like that are enlarged. So what we find interesting is the challenge that people still want fabulous bathrooms, of course, cool kitchens with a lot of, you know, nice appliances, bells and whistles, um, a great bedroom, and a place to socialize. And doing that efficiently is an interesting challenge. As much as possible, if there's ways to eliminate a lot of the circulation space, that's great. But oftentimes, the buildings want to be built extremely efficiently. So you're left with very limited um, dimensions to put units in, and so what you end up doing is looking at how you can maximize storage by either having sometimes taller ceilings and stacking cabinets on top of cabinets in kitchens, for instance, or finding every little nook and cranny in places that you shouldn't, and using those for storage. A lot of times it's maximizing um, places that often weren't used before corners and kitchens where we put a lot of these um, instead of a lazy Susan, which often people hate because things drop in there never to return, <laughs> we'll put these magic corners that pull out and actually are much more usable and you can use more efficient things. So I think a lot of times the ways that you maximize storage is by finding efficient sorts of technologies and things that you can use that people can access storage better. So if it's up high, there's ways to pull it down. There's ways to get it places that you couldn't or you wouldn't normally do it before. Cabinets under bank cuts. Exactly. Absolutely. We do a lot of um, custom mill work in these units. We, we have to. Um, even, even paneling that may may sit off a wall if we have enough space in the living space. Paneling that may sit off the wall 10 inches that allows them additional storage behind that paneling, behind that paneling you know, touch latch things that are, uh, you know, they have a nice, simple, simple detail and it just looks like wall paneling. Um, <clears throat> um, we've, um, we've, we've outfitted closets with super high storage, uh, rolling ladders, et cetera, that uh, allow people to get to what they need when they need it. Um, but most of these units, uh, in order to customize them, you really do have to do, you really do have to install some kind of, uh, 
some kind of treatment on, on the walls, um, whether that be <clears throat> um, um, you know, a, a, a plaster um, appointment to the walls, or it be uh, paneling, or it be excessive number of built-ins in some of these units. We're doing a, a 12 or 1300 foot, square foot unit now in, in the south end. Um, you know, basically a white box, and I think we've got in excess of $150,000, $200,000 in custom millwork going into these spaces to <clears throat> hide things that the client doesn't want to see all the time, but they need them, obviously, right. um, to make the space look, look uh, finished and, and, yeah. and well-detailed, well-appointed. Really? So if there's wallpaper, there are things like that, but obviously those things don't account for storage, but um, you know, sometimes we have soffits. We'll go into these buildings and, you know, we were alluding earlier, Ellen, to the to the to the cost of building some of these spaces, and there may be a soffit that doesn't really need to be there. Um, but that was that was easier and maybe less expensive to build than bringing cabinetry all the way up to the ceiling, uh, cabinetry that maybe a developer doesn't think the client is really going to use. But I was alluding to the fact that we rip out a lot of these kitchens. Um, in these brand new buildings, right. because they have do, to be there for the permit. They do want they do <laughs> want that extra permit. storage space. Um, yeah, for, for the larger high-end buildings, exactly. we we do because of the Article eighty review process. We often have to do a tour of inspection, which is we're there basically to bear witness to the fact that things were built. That's it. We're not looking at quality. We're not looking at life safety. But we see a lot of things. Um, but I, I wanted to say, uh, because of the topic, that the city has come up with a policy uh, through the Mayor's Office of New Urban Mechanics, working with the Department of Neighborhood Development. I'm trying to refrain from using acronyms. Um, uh, and ourselves uh, to come up with a policy which encourages, because it's a way of uh, addressing the sheer cost of units, whether they're rental or, or ownership, you make them smaller. Well, if you make them smaller, there are other things, and, and Ellen was touching upon exactly the kinds of things that are associated with that. If you have, an, and the compact unit policy applies to anything with 10 units or higher, uh, which will encompass a fair amount of conversions um, also, um, there is I think a, uh, an apartment in the back bay, I think two units was being converted to six uh, not that long ago. Um, and uh, those are the kinds of things that wouldn't trigger the policy, but it triggers exactly the kind of considerations that uh, both Michael and, and Ellen were talking about. But the policy, you know, you're looking at a one bedroom unit, which can be you know, 400 feet. Uh, and you do have to think very hard about what you do. So particularly the, the sort of smaller projects like that, but people are marketing these things all the time. So the scale uh, doesn't matter, but, but things which can be thought about and invented and, and built uh, for multiple units become super useful if they are super efficient. The new version of Murphy beds, uh, storage everywhere what you used to pack into um, uh, the Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck camp trailer that converts magically into a thousand <laughs> different things. Um, these are the things that really make life possible in the, in the smaller units as well as the social spaces. Well, so the, and on the simpler side, a lot of um, rental apartment buildings are looking at some of these closet systems like Alpha makes where the developers will put in the tracks and just a hanging bar but oftentimes the renters will come in and add different sorts of drawers and things that they often leave behind because as they're moving to another apartment, it might not have the same system. So it ends up building on um, from one tenant to another this sort of legacy of storage that um, you get as you move from one apartment to another. And, and you know, clients' needs are they vary widely. There's no way that these architects and developers can, can design and build to accommodate all of these needs. Uh, there's just a, a myriad of, of, um, of needs. So when we come in and we start customizing a unit, um, 
you know, what's going on on the 10th floor may be very different for the guy on the sixth floor. Um, and it's the same exact unit all the way down the well there. Um, right. But of course, everybody in this room is also wanting to make a space that's very personal. Of course. For the clients. Right. Um, and that, so that automatically dictates a somewhat different program. Yeah. Um, well, I think, uh, I know a lot of people are eager to get off to Bruin Mania. Um, so just to kind of start drawing things to a close, um, and we appreciate your having taken the time to come here first, so we're very cognizant of that. Uh, but kind of for all of our um, panelists, just to kind of start drawing to a close here, um, a couple of possible things. One, is there a particular piece of advice or thing that you have learned that's specifically important you think for this audience about working on residential urban projects or alternatively is there something that you've been dying to say tonight that we just haven't gotten to yet uh, that you think uh, everybody here needs to know um, and so either of those things um, as you see fit maybe john if you want to convince a client to spend so much money that they don't have need for storage because they have no money to buy stuff to store there's one good trick we try that, but it doesn't work. <laughs> no, I think uh, working in the city, just have to have patience and understand that things are going to take a lot longer than expected. And pre-planning is the key. So I think it, you know, it is really a niche to work in the city of Austin. And uh, it's a learning curve. So it's, it's a hard startup. Personal question I wanted to ask you, which I'm always, what is your annual budget for parking tickets? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I was supposed to go to the Bruins game tonight, but I gave my tickets to the parking, parking meter lady, so I don't get tickets. So we don't get tickets anymore. No, I don't know. We, you know. we do discuss that with the client because it is a big part of it. You know, What are we going to do for parking? Are we going to get spaces in a garage? Do we? shuttle people in and out you know that's a big logistics is a big thing there's no spot for dumpsters so there's a lot of in and out with that employees a lot of them take the tea you know we'll set up the project and they'll just show up so that's the difficult part some of the units in boston are so small there's nothing no spot to set up and you're fortunate if you get a space that you can kind of set up at the beginning leave it and it's just bodies coming in and out in materials we do off hour deliveries City of Boston sometimes grants us a permit to work Saturdays, sometimes, <laughs> but that helps a lot, right? Because, yeah, no, it's nice because as, you know you're not dealing with the people running out to work yeah. and stuff. So, uh, it's just a lot of planning, and you have to be thoughtful to the neighbors and to the clients. So, it's a hand-holding process, but I think it's a it's it's a great place to work. So, David, anything critical we've not thought of or we've missed tonight? Or? We're in the business of trying to make things difficult for John's contractors <laughs> to, to uh, reducing parking everywhere and making sure that there, there's activity, uh, if not 24-7, then 18-7, uh, every seven days of the week, you know, just, just to make it a little bit more difficult. I think the, the, uh, the, the simple brief takeaway is, a, is probably a riff on the um, ad where Gail King says, just say hi. Uh, it's, it's just talk to people. Um, you, you can only learn so much from the website, and that can be helpful. But if you, uh, if you find somebody who's willing to spend a few minutes to talk to you, I talked before about how our staff is sort of geared that way. Um, that can be immensely helpful. You might need to find other uh, people, other professionals, uh, be they owners, reps, or whoever to, to help, but just talking, picking up the phone, talking, um, setting up an appointment if you want to face-to-face. That really unlocks a, a lot of information and a lot of doors and can be super helpful for any project you want to undertake. Yeah, we found like going to ISD early on and meet with yeah. inspector and starting that um, conversation prior is they're, they're good about it too. They'll engage you. So if you do that prior to yeah. just going and dropping off a set of plans, it's very helpful. Yeah. Michael, any parting thoughts? Communication all around. <laughs>
with everybody that you're in contact with, whether it's the client, the contractor, the architect you may be working with on structural issues, um, the client, whoever it is that's involved in that project, whoever has a piece of it, communicate clearly, effectively, often, and, um, and manage expectations. Now, don't set yourself up for disaster. Manage expectations. If you cannot deliver in three weeks, don't tell them you're gonna deliver in three weeks. That's all there is to it. Can't do it. That's an easy one. Um, Ellen. And I would say that building in Boston, not unlike most things in life, if you say you're going to do it, be it when you're talking to neighbors, talking to a public official, talking to your client, whomever, follow through, make sure it happens, it builds your credibility, it shows integrity, and it gets the job done. So it just makes teamwork a lot easier. Right on. Well, those of you who are willing, obviously we've got a few more minutes for you to get another quick drink, have something to eat. Maybe uh, you may have some personal questions for our panelists tonight. Uh, and before I ask you all to give these guys a huge round of applause, I just wanted to think, say also this is obviously the end of our sixth season of the Bad Talks. Uh, the committee will be meeting this summer to discuss season seven. So I expect there will be more interesting things to come. Uh, we always are interested in your feedback about how you feel about some of the topics that have been addressed in the past, but also if there are specific ideas you have about things that would help you in your business that you would like to see on a future Bad Talk. So please get in touch with John or Paul Wright about that, preferably sooner. Um, but, and again, uh, feel free to hang out and say hi to a few people. Um, Thank you for being part of the Bad Talks over the years, and let's hear it for this wonderful panel tonight. Thank you.